This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Our guest today is someone who has, for many years, dug deeply into certain areas of the American political scene. Craig Unger's investigative work has earned him frequent appearances on CNN, MSNBC, and other broadcast outlets. He has written for Vanity Fair, where he was a longtime contributing editor, as well as The New Yorker, Esquire, The Washington Post, and many other publications. Craig Unger has seven books to his credit, including House of Bush, House of Saud, and House of Trump, House of Putin, which have put him on the New York Times bestsellers list. If you're not yet familiar with Mr. Unger's work, we strongly suggest you address that deficiency. You will find him readable, yet relentless in what he uncovers, which he does by digging a bit deeper than the vast majority of reporters filing stories. What he has uncovered are things we think you really should know about. And one topic we're sure that all of us must learn more about is the focus of his latest book. It is titled American Compromat, How the KGB Cultivated Donald Trump, and related tales of sex, greed, power, and treachery. Donald Trump has had financial dealings with Russian entities to their mutual benefit, which have been inadequately explored. And questions remain as to whether they might have more on him than the deals they've done together. There is much in American Compromat that has gotten a fair amount of play in the press, but what astonishes this reader is that much of what Craig Unger has laid out was and is material seemingly hiding in plain sight just glossed over. There's much to discuss here, and to do, sir, we're delighted to be able to say welcome to Radio Parallax, Craig Unger. Uh, it's great to be, be here, and thanks for having me. I, I think we need to start by addressing a couple of key words. You begin the book by addressing the fact that Donald Trump was and is a Russian asset. Can we discuss what asset means, and also the meaning of that key word in the book's title, compromat? What does it mean to be an asset, and, and what is compromat? Right. Well, an asset is, uh, we're talking in the world of intelligence, and there is a difference between being an agent and being an asset. An asset is a much broader category. Uh, an agent is someone who has knowingly been recruited, who can be tasked by a handler uh, to perform uh, specific operations. An asset is somewhat different, and in uh in, in the Russian intelligence, there are many different kinds of assets. And an asset is someone who essentially uh, does favors. He can do things for Russian intelligence. Uh, Trump has been, uh, according to my, one of my main sources, Yuri Schmitz, who was a major in the KGB, Trump is what was known as a special unofficial contact. And that meant uh, they could rely on Trump for favors, the KGB would call on Trump uh, at various times. They would do favors for him, and he would do favors for them. And uh, the way he became an asset goes back more than 40 years to 1980, when Trump bought 200 television sets from an electronic store in New York. Uh, he was doing this for, his, for the hotel he was developing at the time, the Grand Hyatt Hotel. And uh, it turned out the uh, electronics store was a KGB front. And this was a way for the KGB to reach out to Trump, open the door, and start reeling him in. 
Well, I want to note that you, you've relied upon former intelligence officers, both Russian and American, in the research for the book, uh, people that even you note are thought of as people by their very nature who spin deceptive tales, but you point out that it is possible to corroborate a lot of what they say. Can you talk a little bit about that source of yours, Yuri Schvetz? Well, Yuri was a major in the KGB in the 1980s. He uh, happened to be stationed in Washington, and at the same time he was recruiting American spies for the KGB, his colleagues in New York were recruiting Donald Trump. So he knew firsthand some of the people who were involved. He certainly knew all the KGB protocols involved. And he actually came upon documents in which, uh, this was in 1987, in which the KGB celebrated acquiring a great new asset whose name was Donald Trump. (laughs) You have it right there in the book. Your book has had so many eye-opening moments. Um, uh, w- one thing that you sort of note humorously that I think surprised people is, is that it's not so much what was done that was illegal in Trump's history, but rather what was perfectly legal. Trump's financial gains often seem to employ some questionable matters that, that, that are legal but maybe shouldn't be, like buying real estate through shell companies. Absolutely. It's a really important point, and, and it's uh, one of my colleagues, Michael Kinsley, coined a wonderful phrase I love, that the real scandal... Uh, is what is legal. <laughs> and that's especially the case in, in, in the world of intelligence, because an intelligence operation is usually designed to work within the confines of the law. So one of the great problems we've had in uncovering what really happened is that we need a counterintelligence investigation. We never got one. If you remember James Comey, when he was head of the FBI and before he was fired by Trump, he was tasked with doing a counterintelligence operation. He was fired, uh, and Robert Mueller became the special counselor. Uh, he was also tasked with doing a counterintelligence operation investigation, but he never did one. He did a criminal investigation. And that's a real problem because it means we've not gotten to the heart of the matter of how this began I mean, it, it really is sort of mind-blowing to uh, assert that the president of the United States was an uh, intelligence asset for a hostile foreign power, for Russia. Uh, and yet, I believe it's absolutely true. Some of my reviews have said my, the case I make is unassailable. No one has disputed the facts that I report in the book. Uh, and yet, uh, this is not part of the national conversation right now, and that's what really is sort of upsetting to me is I, I, I think we have to get to the bottom of this or it will happen again. Well, I have to note, Craig, that I don't live in New York, but some years back, my nephew does, I was walking around Brooklyn and he was pointing out properties bought by Russians. He'd say, well, that one over there is a Russian. And, and like, apparently this is known to the man in the street uh, that this is going on. We know that a great deal of Russian mafia money got laundered through real estate uh, deals in the U.S. Um, I mean, the man in the street knows this, and yet it doesn't wind up in the Mueller report. Mueller was head of the FBI, and uh, the FBI was investigating this. So, of course, he knew it. And he knew one of the people who was using real estate to launder money for the Russian mafia was Donald Trump. And I reported that in my previous book, uh, House of Trump, House of Putin, and it goes back to 1984 when a, a Russian mobster named uh, David Bogdan uh, walked into Trump Tower, met with Donald Trump, put $6 million in cash down, and said, I'll take five condos. 
And Trump, of course, doesn't ask where it's coming from or anything. He takes the money, and over the next uh, 20 years or so, he sells at least 1,300 condos under circumstances that suggest money laundering. And by that, I mean he's selling to an anonymous uh, company. The, the, the uh, uh, beneficial owner is unknown, and he's doing it in an all-cash transaction. And that's the way things work, and, and that's uh, part of the way uh, Trump was compromised by Russia is they know uh, they have a financial record somewhere, and they own Donald Trump. Well, another little bombshell among many that's in American Compromat, uh, one I found especially fascinating, is this little discussed fact that within an hour of Hillary Clinton conceding the 2016 election, a Moscow newspaper published a story of how it was in, they said, 1986, the Russians supposedly met with Trump the first time. Your KGB expert, Yuri Shvets, has pointed out the story's riddled with holes and seems to, seems to be an effort to carefully obscure Trump's links to Russia. Can you talk about that cover story? This is something that's never been reported before, and uh, it's a real clue. And to Yuri, it was sort of a loose thread that he pulled, and he started to see the whole story of, of, of Trump's relationship to the KGB unravel. Uh, the woman you, you were referring to is named Natalia Dubinina, and her father was ambassador uh, at, at different times both to the United Nations and to the United States from the Soviet Union. And uh, she weaved this story about how they, all, uh, they met Trump in the mid-'80s, and, and her father charmed Trump and all, that, all this kind of stuff, and they invited him to Russia. Well, the entire story was wrong, uh, and we know that for a number of reasons, the most obvious of which is that her father didn't speak English. <laughs> he was famous for not speaking English because it was considered an outrage that Russia would appoint an ambassador to the United States who didn't speak English. So he could not possibly have been the guy who was charming Trump. The guy who was the person who was charming Trump was most likely uh, Natalia, uh, the daughter. And what we see happen after this first contact was made. Now, the opening of the door was the sale uh, of those 200 uh, TV sets, and it, it, it happened at the electronics school of the KGB front, and that allowed the KGB to start cultivating Trump. We don't know everything that happened in the next couple of years, but by 1984 or 85, Natalia Dubinina had met Donald Trump, and, and shortly after that, the KGB, and it was clearly the KGB, invited Donald Trump to Moscow. And at the time, it was unusual for American businessmen to, to go to Moscow, uh, they were wooing him and luring him there with the promise that they, they would allow him to do a, a Trump Tower in, in Moscow. But if, if you remember the Cold War, that's completely absurd. I mean, we were uh, really, really hostile adversaries with the Soviet Union at the time. They were committed communists. The idea that they wanted a monument to capitalism on Red Square <laughs> is laughable. And yet Donald Trump seemed to believe it because they were flattering him. Uh, he, he was a real sycophant. Over the next few years, you see Trump behaving as uh, in the press. You can go back to the, the press clippings at the time, and suddenly Trump 
uh, fancies himself a, an expert on foreign affairs. He says he uh, he knows more about nuclear arms than anyone in the country, and he should be negotiating the strategic arms limitation talks. The Soviets, according to Yuri, continue to flatter him and say, gosh, your ideas on foreign policy are so uh, unorthodox and refreshing. It's wonderful. You should be president of the United States. And then again, they, they invite him to Moscow. And when he comes back, he decides to run for president. Uh, and that's when uh, we start to see that he really does become an active Russian asset. Craig, I was asking people about uh, things that they remembered from this era, late Reagan, I guess, early Bush uh, 41. Uh, I think one of the great aha moments for you, for me in reading your book is looking back at this time of Trump posturing all of a sudden as a Russian expert in the wake of his visit to the you know, KGB-sponsored visit at the USSR. He does something quite extraordinary and buys full-page ads in U.S. newspapers critical of U.S. foreign policy, presenting views that are curiously in sync with Russian ideas at the time. This did get a bit of buzz at, at the time, but it didn't arouse any suspicions, and except for your book, looking back at it, seems forgotten. I, 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 want, I want you to talk about this, this self, the Trump's self-promotion as a national security expert running for president and, and what, how this all fits with what we've seen since. Right. Well, well this is, I, I think, the key incident that sort of tied it all up in a bow to me. Again, if you go back through the, the clippings of that era, you can see that Trump begins talking to reporters uh, at the Washington Post and New York Times and so forth, uh, saying that he knows more about nuclear stuff than anyone in the world. And shortly after that, they invite him to Moscow. And according to Yuri Schmidt, Yuri had recruited his own American spies. And he told me he knows all the protocols. He knew all the people in the New York station. Yuri was recruiting people while he was based in Washington. And his colleagues in New York were recruiting Donald Trump. And they were force-feeding Trump uh, idea, these ideas about foreign policy were, that were completely off the wall. If you know Trump's history, in 1987, he met uh, Jeffrey Epstein, and he was sort of playboy of the Western world. They were having parties with 28 girls and two guys, and Trump was no expert in foreign policy. It's sort of ludicrous. Um, but when they took him to Moscow, they finally convinced him to run for president of the United States. And Reagan was still president at the time. George H.W. Bush was vice president, but he was clearly the uh, presumptive nominee for the Republican Party in 1988. And suddenly, after this visit to Moscow, Donald Trump decides that he may explore whether or not to challenge George Bush for the nomination. He begins... Uh, the exploratory parts of the campaign. He actually goes to New Hampshire, which is sort of a rite of passage for Republican candidates who want to enter the primary. Then, in September 1987, he takes out a full-page ad stating his foreign policy beliefs. And they're sort of wild and off-the-wall and crazy. He wants to dismantle NATO. He wants to dismantle our alliance with Japan. I mean, th these ideas were, were just didn't make any sense unless you understood the KGB was mounting all sorts of disinformation operations, sort of active measure operations, where they were 
promoting these ideas. And Trump took out a, a, an ad in September of 1987, um, and it, it had all these crazy ideas in it. Meanwhile, Yuri Schwitz was back in Moscow for a while, and while he was in KGB headquarters, they distributed an internal memo celebrating the acquisition uh, of a new Soviet asset uh, who, who had just successfully finished his first active measure. And they attached to it this ad in the New York Times that was taken out by Donald Trump. Trump had put that ad in the New York Times and the Washington Post, and in doing so, that was a, an active measure for the KGB. That's how he worked as an asset. We're speaking with author Craig Unger about his book, American Compromise. I remember so well Trump doing that, and I've asked people, do you, do you, remember, do you remember this? And it's, it just amazes me. People are like, yeah, vaguely, vaguely, but it, it, should have, it should have made a bigger impression. No, it made no sense at the time. It was completely inexplicable. And, and, I mean, you know, the idea that he wanted to enter politics didn't make sense to anyone at the time. He, he was in the tabloids. I live here in New York, and every time he slept with someone, he'd call it into a custom <laughs> column and tell them all about it and how he was the greatest lover in the world. That's what Donald Trump was up to. That's what we thought of. I was a reporter in New York Magazine back then, and you just saw him as this obnoxious real estate developer. The idea that he had political ambitions uh, didn't make sense. And then when you looked at these ideas, it made even less sense. Well, he sort of became the butt of late night comics punchlines for a while. And I do want to throw one little comedic interlude that came from your book that I'd forgotten that after he went to that meeting in 86 and, and, and came back and told the press that he'd spoken with Gorbachev, not true, then told the press when Gorby comes to New York, he wants to come by and visit me at Trump Tower. Also not true. But he himself gets faked out by a Gorbachev imposter who got photographed in the building when Trump came down to meet him. I just thought that was very funny. Sort of astounding. And it's also astounding how little uh, this has been covered. It's sort of not part of the national conversation. And yet here you have the president of the United States who I believe uh, was a Russian asset. Yes, the, your, your book takes a middle section uh, off of Trump, devotes some tension elsewhere, which it needs to do. For example, a, re, a detour into the world of Opus Dei, a secretive organization of authoritarian Catholics. Uh, turns out it's been surprisingly influential in American political circles and uh, notably judicial and legal circles and also the Trump saga. Can you just talk a little bit about that group? Right. Well, it, it's a very secretive culture. It's very right-wing and very authoritarian. And it's probably most famous because of these books like The Da Vinci Code, which really doesn't represent it fairly. On the other hand, Opus Dei is really an odd sect. It dates back to Spanish fascism, to the Franco era, and it's extremely authoritarian. And when Franco was running Spain, uh, the Opus Dei sect effectively took over the entire Spanish judiciary. And uh, it's, a, it's a tiny sect, but in Washington, D.C., it happens to be re quite powerful. It's secretive, so it won't tell you who its members are, uh, but one of them allegedly was uh, William Barr. He denies it, but he was head of the Catholic Information Center, which is the operational headquarters for Opus Day in Washington. A lot of the people who are part of it were, are also part of the Federalist Society. And when you look at 
the Republicans on the Supreme Court, every single one of them who's presently serving, sort of came out of a, a sort of a joint approval vetting by uh, the Federalist Society. Uh, Leonard Leo is executive vice president of the Federalist Society, and he is the man who's been in charge of vetting virtually every uh, Republican nominee to the United States Supreme Court since Scalia. There are six members now serving. They also were responsible for blocking the Merrick Garland nomination before that. So they've had just enormous influence in the judiciary. It is not just the Supreme Court. There are hundreds of federal judges who have lifetime appointments who were also vetted by them. The political positions are pretty clear. They're always anti-Roe v. Wade, anti-abortion. But under Barr, it became clear more than anything they believed in the imperial presidency, in a presidency that's sort of unbounded. And they use what is known as the theory of the unitary executive that essentially banks the president uh, almost above the law. So they played a huge role in enabling Trump while he was president. Yes, your, your book reminds us that, uh, you know, whether he was a card-carrying Opus Day member or not, William Barr did a lot of work for Bush 41 back uh, when he worked for him in the CIA in the 70s, and then sort of a kind of the go-to guy for Bush for political cover-ups, uh, which, which is sort of, what a coincidence to see what he did when he revisited his office at the Attorney General uh, under Trump. Absolutely, under Bush, you had the Iran-Contra scandal, you had the Iraq-Gate, and, and several other scandals, and Barr was the guy who pardoned everyone involved and sort of swept it under the rug. And uh, then 20 years later, he comes back as uh, Attorney General for a second time and is the chief enabler for Donald Trump. The saga of Jeffrey Epstein has generated a lot of headlines in recent years. You, you delve quite deeply into this Epstein saga, and in particular the possible compromise angle to it. I'm sure many listeners have seen that ex- excellent documentary on Netflix about Epstein, but there is more of a Russian angle to the story, starting with Epstein's girlfriend, who was a daughter of Robert Maxwell, who was himself uh, is a financier but a notorious Russian asset. The Epstein story uh, is still ongoing, by the way, and I I try to get to the bottom, but I think there's going to be more of it to come. I took a different approach than most people, which, uh, I mean, it's, it's most frequently talked about uh, in terms of sexual trafficking, and, of course, that's what it was about in, in large measure. But I look at it in terms of that they, they were creating a compromise factory. Compromise means compromising materials, and essentially that can be done through uh, uh, documentation of sexual activities or of, uh, or perhaps malfeasance with regard to money or various crimes or whatever. And in with Epstein, uh, you had, of course, I mean, it's pretty well known now, but they were secretly videotaping uh, a lot of people in, in sexual acts, often with underage girls. And uh, the fact that the girls were so young, of course, is an important part of it because that's compromise even for a multi-billionaire. Otherwise, it's one thing to have just an extramarital affair or something. Uh, I think a billionaire may be able to talk his way around that if he's not headed for a divorce. With underage girls involved, it's much, much more serious. So you have hundreds 
of videotapes of uh, rich and powerful people. If you look at the black book, the address book that uh, Jeffrey Epstein and Glenn Maxwell had, I mean, it's filled with extraordinary people. Uh, it's like the most famous and powerful people in the world. Craig, I, I, I was astounded to find from your book, which I'd not seen elsewhere, that some of those pur- purported t- sex tapes from Epstein's case wound up in Russia, in part because law enforcement in Florida thought that, you know, that, that they were going to call off the dogs on the prosecution. I just think the presence in Russia begs the questions of, of compromise with uh, prominent Americans, and, and dare we say it, maybe Trump himself? It is possible. I mean, actually, one of Epstein's friends told me that Epstein was showing around a photo of Trump with two girls who were not fully clothed. Uh, They were young. I don't know the exact age, but clearly something was going on, and there was a stain on Trump's trousers in a position that was highly suggestive. There's so many possibilities in terms of who has those that compromise, and one that I, I, I tracked down involved a member of the uh, Palm Beach Sheriff's Department, a, f- a former, former deputy sheriff named John Mark Dugan. And this was a, uh, a, quite an interesting character to me. who was someone you might find in an Elmore Leonard novel or a Carl, or a Carl Hyacin novel. He was sort of uh, on the lower, one of the lower-ranking people in the Palm Beach Sheriff's Department. He left the department under dubious circumstances, but this was while they were investigating Jeffrey Epstein, and they had many of the tapes. And one of the investigators later went to John Mark Dugan and said, why don't you keep some of these tapes, uh, these videos for me for safekeeping, and gave him a vault that, according to Dugan, had 478 uh, DVDs in it. And I tracked Dugan down in, in Moscow by phone, uh, and we had a long talk about all this. He actually showed me one of the videos, um, which I should say was very, very grainy, and I could not identify the man involved. It suggests that at least some of this is real. And what was extraordinary about Dugan is, he, again, he's not a very highly placed individual, but as soon as he got to Russia, he met with one of Putin's top uh, advisors, Pavel Borodin, who was in charge of all the property owned by the Russian Federation. That's nearly a trillion dollars in assets. And uh, so so I have a photo of them together, uh, Pavel Borodin and John Mark Dugan. And what it really suggests is that there is a deal going on, or or at least an attempt at one, to sell compromise to the Russian Federation. It's an interesting convergence of, of, of the fact that, you know, that, that, that Epstein shares all these uh, social connections, legal connections, financial connections, and, and Russian connections with, with Donald Trump. Yes. Oh, it's unbelievable. Your book closes by returning to William Barr and how he guards the prerogatives of the executive branch and, and what Barr did for Trump as regards the Mueller report. To quote, to quote from the book, you said Barr's presentation of it on March 24th 2019, which may go down as one of the most artfully deceptive and effective undertakings in the history of spin control. In that masterpiece of disinformation, Barr completely stole Mueller's thunder and misrepresenting it, 
and presenting Trump forces with a victory they used to label the entire Russia-Trump scandal a hoax. Strong words, but it's clear Barr buried the obstruction of justice uh, that, was, that was in the Mueller report. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, what, what's so distressing to me is that I, I, I think uh, America just sort of lived in a state of denial of some of the most serious malfeasance that's been ongoing, and we don't want to get to the bottom of things. Um, I think it's essential that we do. If we don't, it will happen again. And even if Trump is, Trump is gone now, but the Russians aren't. And I, I believe they control the Republican Party as much as they, they control Donald Trump. I mean, when you look at uh, the most powerful person in the, in the Republican Party today, is Mitch McConnell, and you see that suddenly there's a new coal mine in Kentucky, courtesy of Oleg Deripaska, the, the Russian oligarch, who's very, very close to Putin. Uh, you know, I'm not sure Americans really get it that these oligarchs really are the highest-level intelligence operatives imaginable. Uh, they're multi-multi-billionaires, and the only way they get that way is through their fealty to Vladimir Putin. So they are, so Deripaska is uh, an intelligence agent for, for Vladimir Putin, and when he brings in uh, a coal mine to benefit Mitch McConnell, uh, that he's operating on instructions from Putin. Craig, I have to hit something really extra hard on on today's program because I have a number of people, uh, friends of mine, who just seem to have an unusual amount of doubt about the entire Trump-Russia connection. Robert Mueller cited the WikiLeaks revelations against Clinton as having originated with Russian military intelligence in effort to help the Trump campaign. Then I have friends that go out and listen to someone like Bill Benny, an NSA expert. He says, no, that wasn't an actual hack. That was a leak from disgruntled DNC employees. What What do you say to all of this? Well, it's not true. <laughs> 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 they have no evidence. And I, I, I think the Mueller report, I, I mean, as you, we were saying earlier, one, it, it didn't go nearly far enough. I mean, Mueller himself, you know, a lot of people have said to me, why can you say all this happened, Mueller would have gotten to the bottom of it. And to that, I say, no, he wouldn't have. Uh, so much of what I've uncovered actually comes from FBI files. When you look at uh, how Trump laundered money for, uh, for, for the Russian mafia, I got that from the FBI files. So Mueller was head of the FBI. Of course he knew about it. But I, I don't think it's in Mueller, when you, when you look broadly speaking at what we've been through over the last five years, it is really the greatest national uh, security failure, the greatest counterintelligence catastrophe in history. And I don't think Robert Mueller is going to say that and say, and he, here's how we did it. I mean, the FBI was in large part responsible for that. And that's another book. <laughs> but you can see that the FBI is deeply, deeply divided. Two former directors of the FBI, William Sessions, and after him, uh, Louis Free, ended up working for top Russian mobsters. I mean, that's, that's all a matter of public record. I mean, you just yeah. have to Google it, and you can find it in almost any newspaper. 
Well, in preparation for talking to you, I was pulling out some old clippings, and I, I found this item from January 7, 2021, with the headline on it, Justice Department Federal Courts Hit by Russian Hack. And the article, of course, outlines how the hacking was extraordinary in scale, they said, and operated for months. So I think it's clear we're not talking about something in the past, but something that's ongoing. Oh, absolutely. And I, I mean, I don't know if you followed the solar winds hack, but this could be the biggest of them all. And what you see is that uh, Russia, and, and it's clearly Russia, uh, you know, that just as you or I might use companies like Dropbox or various uh, providers in the cloud, uh, the U.S. government and all our agencies use much, much bigger companies to, to handle all their data. Well, one of them, SolarWinds, has been hacked. And that means when they hack through SolarWinds, they can get through all of their clients. And all of their clients means virtually the entire infrastructure of essential services in the United States. That means they can be sitting on the electric grid in Texas when there's a huge ice storm and just fiddle with things so they don't work out well. If I don't know if you saw a recent story in, in Tampa how... The water supply of Tampa yes. was hacked, and briefly they rejiggered it, it so that the amount of lye in the water supply of Tampa was increased a hundredfold. Well, it happened someone really was paying attention <laughs> and, and stopped it before everyone in Tampa died. There are just a number of things like that that are very, very scary. And we don't really know the, the breadth and depth of this penetration. But there are over 18,000 agencies that were penetrated as a result and are vulnerable. And it's not clear at all that we can protect ourselves from this. You know, this is a new kind of warfare. Everyone sort of assumed that the West won the Cold War, it was over. Well, no, it wasn't. The KGB sort of uh, hibernated for a while. They plowed tens of billions of dollars into various commodity companies and so forth and started doing business internationally with the United States in many cases and appeared to be perfectly legitimate uh, companies. But now we're seeing what they've been up to. Uh, they bailed out Donald Trump on many, many occasions, and uh, they're playing a huge role in a very surreptitious way in American politics. You finished this book shortly after the election, but before Trump left office, and your final sentences are, Trump has made it clear he intended to remain a powerful political force. He was not going away. And of course, a few weeks later, we had the Capitol insurrection on January 6th. Uh, to what degree do you imagine that Trump feared that the Russian connections would sink him once he's out of office and then perhaps leading to that putsch that he led at the Capitol? I don't know what's going through Trump's mind at all. <laughs> and I, I, I hate trying to answer that question. <laughs> and he may be finished forever, for all I know. But I, I, I also think the, the calculus has changed enormously now that he's out, out of power. And what it means is, obviously, he was a powerful, powerful pawn that the Russians had to play, and he's no longer in that position. Um, they may want to get rid of him at some point, in which case, I mean, there's been speculation that some of the compromise that they have on him would be released, which, of course, would be very interesting. 
You also have to wonder whether any of these investigations, as with the New York uh, City District Attorney or the New York State's uh, Attorney General, what they will yield. Uh, it's clear to me that the Russians aren't through with the United States with, it, with playing this game. Their hacking, in particular, is enormously threatening to the United States. Uh, it can be a very powerful weapon. Well, as we wrap up, I, I, I know you don't have a crystal ball that works any better than any of the rest of us, but I, I want to ask you about what, what you, you predict for the future here. We had this insurrection on January 6th. We have all these issues which you've written about in this book and previous books. Um, do you think that the new administration and the new Justice Department is going to have the fortitude to hold Trump responsible for what has happened? I, I'm prepared to be uh, disappointed. <laughs> And, and and it's just after you know I've been investigative reporting for fifty years and I've seen America sweep things under the rug again and again and again and I think uh, the FBI certainly does not probably not want to get to the bottom of this because I, I mentioned earlier that how uh, former two of the former directors ended up working for the Russians right and I I think that suggests that there's been. Uh, that, among other things, suggests that there's been a real division, almost a civil war between the FBI that the FBI doesn't really want to talk about. The one thing I explored a bit in American Compromise was Trump had close, close relationships to powerful people in the FBI going back to 1973, and he made sure they were sort of covering his ass. Uh, he, could, he made close friends with James Calstrom, who was running the New York office, Giuliani, who, of course, is, is very close to Trump, uh, was a powerful figure within the FBI because he worked so closely with him going back to when he, he was in the U.S. Attorney's Office. And Giuliani himself was very, very close to people like Semyon Kislin, who was, as my book begins, the guy who ran the electronic store that uh, was a real KGB front. So you have all of this and more that suggests that the FBI itself is very compromised. And I'm not sure if the Justice Department, even under Biden, would want to get to that. We've been speaking with author Craig Unger about his new book, American Compromise, How the KGB Cultivated Donald Trump and Related Tales of Sex, Greed, Power, and Treachery. We hope everyone listening will be able to obtain this book, uh, which, of course, covers far more than we can possibly squeeze into a radio show. Craig Unger, please keep doing what you're doing. Keep writing stuff. We, uh, we, we thank you for speaking with us and hope we can have you on again. Well, thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. That pretty much does it for today's show, which was produced by Edward McMillan. Dr. Cyril Wecht, who's been a great friend of this program over the years, has an opinion about what happened to Jeffrey Epstein. He recently held a symposium on that event at Duquesne University. He suspects that Mr. Epstein was the victim of foul play and will hopefully join us in the next week or two to talk about that. Craig Unger has recommended that we also speak with his source, Yuri Schwetz, formerly of the KGB, about what he knows, and we'll probably do that on the same program. I hope so. It is interesting for us to note in closing that the January 6th insurrection that swarmed the nation's capital has, to date, produced... No criminal charges aimed at former President Donald Trump, something we find rather concerning. Since we last spoke about that putsch attempted coup in the U.S., we've noticed that there's been quite a bit of um, 
spin attempted to, to direct uh, attention elsewhere. At one point, it was suggested that what really happened was that Antifa had stormed our nation's capital. And by God, I think that a small percentage of uh, Trump fans actually bought into that one. And it would seem that a lot of those who did not are just trying to say that, well, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't an armed insurrection. But of course, it was. And we'll continue to talk about it in the weeks to come. I'm Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax, and we hope to resume regular weekly broadcasts soon. If we don't achieve that in the immediate future, please still check in from time to time on our website, radioparallax.com.